Welcome back to the Palview Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the uh, senior pastor here at Palview Christian Church in beautiful central Oregon. And uh, I just wanted to welcome you back to our podcast and um, uh, in the middle of our series on the Gospel of Luke. It's good to have you with us. Uh, if you are coming back, welcome back. If you are brand new, um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to other of our podcasts. Essentially, what I preach on Sunday mornings, I do here on the podcast. It's uh, way better to do it this way than to try to get a live recording of the actual sermon. And it's it's a little bit more intimate then, I guess, with uh, the podcast listeners and myself. And uh, I, I'd encourage you to reach out to me. Uh, you can email me at uh, trey.com. PBCC, that's Powell View Christian Church, T-R-E-Y dot P-B-C-C at Gmail. And just let me know that you've been listening and that would be a great encouragement, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure that uh, many, many Christians have heard of a guy named C.S. Lewis. He was the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Famously, he had been an atheist and uh, had set out to disprove scripture. And in doing so, he actually became a Christian. Uh, as he was uh, an Oxford scholar, and he applied what he understood about um, uh, literature and, and legends, and he came to the conclusion that the Bible was no legend at all, and uh, there was only one conclusion that he could, as a rational man, come to, and that was Jesus is exactly who he says he was, that he is the Lord, and uh, that the Bible is true. And and so that because of those reasons, just uh, I, I have an admiration for Lewis and his intellect, uh, his study, his scholarship, his writings. But even more so, I admire his honesty in life. In 1952, this was after he'd become a Christian, he had been writing to one of his fans. She was from America. Her name is Joy Gresham. She had recently converted to Christianity. She had grown up as a communist Jew, uh, but she had given her life to the Lord and uh, But she was looking to Lewis uh, for some kind of help, advice, some kind of comfort. Uh, she was going through a very hard divorce, and he had just written a book called The Great Divorce. And so he uh, wrote a little special message, uh, autographed the book for her, sent it to her. But, but in their correspondence, um, Lewis wrote the following insight to Joy. He says, you know, there are three images in my mind which I must continually forsake and replace by better ones. First one is the false image of God. Second one is the false image of my neighbors. And then thirdly is the false image of myself. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, in his observance and in his insight, he realized that people form an image of God in their minds. Uh, we, we form an image of other people and our, our, ourselves. Uh, we, we go through certain experiences, um, we, we read books, we hear sermons, uh, TED Talks, whatever. And our, our image of God is shaped by our experience um, and, and by what we read and what we study. Um, the, the image of other people uh, is probably shaped by the interactions with them. The image of ourselves is shaped by our peers and our parents and, uh, and the media. Uh, what Lewis was saying is that often those images, though, are not the real reality. 
that they might represent a part of reality, but oftentimes they're skewed. And if we hold on to them too tightly, we don't actually allow ourselves to see what is real. Now, for our study today, I, I want to look particularly at the image that uh, we may have formed about God throughout our lives. Uh, you know, there was a reason that uh, God gave this commandment, commandment number two, uh, to his people through Moses. And that commandment said, I don't want you to make any images uh, made of his being uh, in his likeness. Why? Well, because God is infinite and eternal and boundless, limitless. And so by making an, a, an image, if you were engraving an image in wood or stone, then you are containing God into a smaller uh, deity than what he really is, right? Now, for the, the Israelites, that was a matter of not engraving an image. But in my experience, the idols that we create for ourselves in Christianity today aren't as much as um, formed in wood or stone, but they are formed in our minds. And in order for us to get a, then a better picture of God, uh, our false image of God, our inadequate um, image of God, our incomplete uh, image of God must be torn down so that God can reveal himself through his word more accurately and in a way that uh, causes us to have a certain kind of relationship with him that he has desired. Now, C.S. Lewis went on to marry this gal, Joy, and she made him extremely happy. And he was happy until four years into their marriage when Joy died of cancer. And Lewis himself, as a believer still, he falls into this deep grief, and he began to question uh, the nature of God. He didn't question the existence of God. He just said, well, is God a good God indeed? Or, as he would put it, uh, was God a comic sadist? Well, ultimately, what he was saying is that, uh, boy, once he thought he had gotten God figured out, God surprised him. God surprised him. Now, let me ask you, have you ever been surprised by God? Have you ever thought, well, God is going to do it this way, or God always does things this way, and all of a sudden, God acts in a different way and doesn't seem to ask your permission before he does? If you are honest, are you, you know, like me at times, uh, do you have some questions about why? Why? Why me, God? Why this? Why in this way? Why is life this way? Now, in, in as a Christian, as a young person, I, I always was made to believe that Christianity um, discouraged questioning God. Um, to have doubt, well, that was frowned on. And, um, because it, it was almost like they taught us that doubt was the opposite of faith. And so if you had any questions, that was discouraged. Just just believe. Don't, don't, don't question anything. Just believe. But here's reality. Uh, doubt is a part of our life, Right. Yes, we can believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God, but also observe that God does things sometimes that knocks us for a loop. Now, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. The way that the biblical authors talk about faith, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, but a rejection of reality. And so it's, it's, a, it's a lack of belief in God and uh, disobedience to God, or, or having no action whatsoever. Inaction is really the opposite of faith. Not doubt. 
doubt is, is it's a tool. It's like a hammer, right? Uh, you can look at a hammer and say, well, is a hammer good or is it bad? I mean, I could use a hammer in very, very bad ways, or I can use a hammer in very, very constructive ways. Doubt uh, depends on how I use it, if it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing, because doubt can drive me away from any kind of trust in God. Or doubt can actually lead me closer to God and deepen my faith in him in times where God is just too marvelous for me to comprehend. So today I, I want us to look at this passage where there is a person of amazing faith, by the way, who encounters a time of doubt, a, a time of questioning the plan of God, uh, of, of living in a moment where he just didn't understand. So we're, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 18. This is after Jesus preaches one of the greatest sermons in history, and he returns to a, a little town on the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. And while he was there, he heals a centurion servant. By the way, he doesn't even have to go see the servant. The, the centurion, this is back in uh, chapter 7, starting in, starting the beginning of the chapter, where the centurion says, you don't even have to come to my house, Jesus. You can just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And, and Jesus is amazed at that faith. And, and then he goes from Capernaum to a town called Nain, where he raises a widow's son from the dead. Her son would have been her sole support and uh, means by which she could live. And so uh, Jesus raises her son from the dead. And it tells us in, in Luke 7 uh, that all of this word got back to John the Baptist, who, who was in prison at the time. Uh, starting in verse 18, we, we read, the disciples of John reported all these things to John. And uh, then John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Wow. Uh, I want you to understand the sense of what John is saying here. Is There's real struggle here, and for good reason, because he had, in front of everybody, had proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And he even said that Jesus was going to come to judge the world. He says, you know, I baptize you with water. This guy's going to baptize you with fire, you know? And, and he got in the face of the religious authorities saying, uh, Jesus is going to come and he's going to peg you guys to the wall. But now, after sitting in a jail cell, quite possibly up for uh, up to a year, John's hearing about, yeah, he's hearing about what Jesus is doing, his teachings and uh, the miracles. But there's no word at all about judging, about judging the world especially judging the corrupt king, King Herod, who had imprisoned John in the first place. And it seems like John isn't understanding. Are you the one, or was I mistaken when I told people that you were the one? Well, let me ask you this. Was John mistaken? Man, to put that into context, you've you got to go back to the very first chapter of Luke's account, where God is preparing a man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, way past childbearing age and barren, to actually allow her to get pregnant so that John would be born as the prophet that would prepare the world for the Messiah. See, God was fulfilling a promise of saying, before the Messiah comes, there will be one that will make straight a path, a voice that calls in the wilderness. And that's John. 
And as an adult, John is obedient to the call and he baptizes people for the repentance of sin. And then when Jesus makes his way to be baptized, John proclaims in to all of those who were hearing him that Jesus was the Messiah. If anybody knew who Jesus was, it was John, even before he was born. The angel had come to Mary and said, you're going to be uh, the bearer of the Messiah. Uh, God's spirit will come upon you and you will, you will be pregnant. And, uh, and then Mary, uh, upon these words, said, may it be to me according to your will. And then she heads to see her cousin Elizabeth or her relative Elizabeth. Um, and Elizabeth is six months pregnant, uh, well advanced in age. It was a miracle. And Elizabeth is pregnant with John. John was in utero. And while he was there still in the womb, when Mary shows up, Elizabeth says, the child inside of me had leaped for joy on hearing your voice, Mary. So even before John was born, he knew who Jesus was. And yet he was confused. Even this great man of faith was confused because God was doing something that he didn't understand. Or perhaps better put, God was not doing something. <laughs> and that inaction was something that knocked John for a loop. He didn't understand it. His whole life had been defined by serving this cause. This had been his mission. This had been his identity. And, and yet God was not doing it the way that John thought that God should be doing it. So how about you? Have you ever, has God ever done or not done something in your life that made you kind of confused? You, you need to know this, especially from this account in, in uh, Luke chapter 7. Doubting does not make you a bad person. Doubting did not make John the Baptist a bad person or a sinful person. Doubt is not the sin. It's, it's rather how you handle the doubt and the questions that you have that is going to make the difference. So there are three keys of handling doubt and questions the right way that is found in this passage that uh, I want to park at and, but for the rest of our time together. The first point is something that we've talked about a lot, and that is the, the transparency, the honesty in our life. We need to be honest about our doubts when they come. The, the first key for handling doubts is we need to go to God with our doubts. John's doubts are real, but he doesn't try to hide them, right? And he doesn't use them as an excuse to not believe in Jesus anymore. In fact, John does just the opposite. He uses his doubts to actually go directly to Jesus and try to get clarification. Okay, And he's very blunt. He gets right to the point. Have you ever read the Psalms? They're pretty blunt. King David in Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's pretty blunt. Another psalmist by the name of Asaph has an experience very similar to John the Baptist, where uh, things were just not making sense in his life. In, in Psalm 77, uh, Asaph wrote probably uh, four or five psalms that we have in, in our Bible. And they, many of them are kind of in the same vein. In 77, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then in uh, 7 through 9, this is what Asaph says. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and my soul refused to be comforted. It's like Asaph is reaching out to God, but God is just not there. Uh, then you skip down to verse 7. 
and, and 8 and 9, he says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Well, now, those are all rhetorical questions because we know the answer, because we know the, the, the character of God in the Bible. He is faithful. He is loving. He, he, his promises do not fail. And yet, there was some doubt, and Asaph is going to God. He's writing these down. He says, God, are, are you rejecting me? Are you going to continue to reject me? Are, are you never going to show me your favor again? Uh, has your unfailing love failed? Boy, that's, that's pretty gutsy. But you need to know this, folks, if nothing else. You need to know that God is not offended by those kinds of statements, those kind of conversations that you have with him. In fact, it's, I think it's very appropriate that you would take those complaints to him. It's like if you were at, at a fine dining establishment and there's something wrong with the service or there's something wrong with the food, you're not going to just be satisfied to talk with the server about it. If you want to get things changed, you go to the manager, the, the, the one that can do something about it, right? So John says, I'm going to go straight to Jesus because I know that he could do something about this. I'm not going to just talk uh, you know, bad about Jesus to my friends and say, well, I just, I, I don't think that he's real or I don't think that he's really the guy. He goes, no, listen, I'm going, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to go to him. I'm going to be honest about my doubts. And Jesus is gracious. He's not offended, right? Uh, instead, he, he once again gives uh, the spiritual evidence of his true mission. He says, hey, listen, go tell John about what's happening here. I mean, tell him I just healed a centurion's servant. I just brought a young man back to life. I'm at work. I'm at work doing God's work. You can trust that that work is real because it is of God. It is miraculous. That's a patient answer, folks. That's a gracious answer. And I'm encouraged to, to see these kinds of examples because they show us that our God is a God full of compassion and grace. And he deals with our doubts in a manner that isn't shaming us for having the doubts, but actually is, is a response to us that will help us develop a greater trust in him to say, okay, I guess you do know what you're doing, even though I, I don't know what you're doing. And, and though what you're doing may look different than what I would have wanted you to do, I can then understand, okay, you are God. There is a God and I am not him. You are, and I will trust you. And not only is he gracious, but Jesus actually defends John still. If you look back in Luke chapter 7, after this encounter, and people are listening to this, Jesus begins to address the crowd about John, and he defends John. Look at verses 24 through 28. When John's messengers had been gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, they're in the king's courts. So what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. See, Jesus is telling the crowd that just watched this interaction. He says, listen, you didn't come out here to see Sideshow John. 
You came out here to see somebody truly from God, and that's exactly who John was. He is the prophet. He is the messenger that God sent ahead uh, to, to prepare people for me. He says, and listen, nobody born of woman is greater than John. See, John didn't lose his status by expressing doubt and confusion. In fact, he showed great wisdom and trust by coming to, to Jesus with honesty about his issues. Second point, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. See, the second key to overcome doubt is actually to be more observant, focusing more attention on what God is doing, what he has done, the, the character of God, how he actually does manifest that in everyday life. See, John, John's question is, are you the one? Well, Jesus' answer is, well, go tell John what I'm doing. Look around to see what God is doing through me. If you, we live in an amazing part of the, of the country, an amazing part of the world, such beauty. You, you just go outside and, and you can look around at nature and you see God's fingerprints all over. Um, you know, if, if you look at the way that this world has been created, you'll see some amazing work of, of God. The sun, for example, is a certain distance from the earth. If it, if it were any closer or any further away, human life could not exist on this planet. The earth also rotates, rotates on its axis at a certain angle. Any change in that degree of the angle, human life could not exist. The air that we breathe is perfect for human existence. Those are just a few examples of where we see God's fingerprints. You look around in nature, you will find the Lord at work. Another place that we see God at work is in other people's lives. You know, I find it oddly comforting that John's doubt came immediately after Jesus had healed the centurion's son and, and raised the widow's son from the dead. Jesus is in the midst of doing things. He is showing his power. Now, I get it. And, and maybe this was something going on in John's brain. I, I know it sometimes occurs in my brain and other people's brains. But where you go, well, that's great. Those miracles are great for other people. But what is Jesus doing for me? <laughs> what is Jesus doing for John? I mean, yeah, great. You, you healed that guy, but I'm still in prison. Maybe you've been in a situation where the doubts that arise aren't, aren't so much about if God is doing something, but why isn't he doing something for me? <sighs> we, need to, we need to change our perspective, I, I guess. And, and realize that the world, the universe, doesn't revolve around us. But we have this book called the Bible, which is actually a compilation of 66 books. And in that compilation, there are so many examples of God showing his power. And we believe them to be true. But often we have a hard time understanding when we don't get that Red Sea to part, or where we don't receive a physical healing, or we don't get God coming in and saving the day and keeping one of our loved ones from passing away. It's like we think that we would have no doubts if God would only do the miraculous for us as well. But again, it's, it's about perspective. Are you so sure that doesn't, God doesn't do the miraculous for you? You know, there was a cartoon where the character was on his knees saying, it's not easy to believe in you, God, because we never see you. Why don't you ever show yourself? And in the subsequent panels, you see flowers springing into life. 
and an, a volcano erupting in the distance, and a, a, a star shooting across the, the night uh, sky, and uh, lightning flashing, and a, and a bush beginning to burn, and then a stone rolling away from the entrance to a tomb. And then that cartoon character says, okay, okay, I give up, I give up. But every time I bring up the subject, all we get is interruptions. <laughs> and yet those interruptions are God doing the miraculous. If you go back to Psalm 77, again, Psalm of Asaph, he's in this time of not understanding what God is up to. But he has this wonderful idea that he says to us in, uh, in verse um, 10 and, and following. Again, this is Psalm 77, a Psalm of Asaph. Asaph says, but then, but then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. And I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. See, if God has ever proved faithful, those are the times that we can look back on and, and, and check out, be observant. And even if we don't see it in the present, we can at least remember in the present what we had seen in the past. See, our faith in God is built on his faithfulness. And we must trust that God, that he really does have our best in mind and has proven his power because he's continually at work, even behind the scenes, where sometimes you actually have to look with especially sharp eyes because God is in the business of recreating us into the person he designed us to be. So he's doing things, and his power really is at work. Maybe not in the way that we would want, but if we were honest about it, if we were really honest about the looking around and seeing what he's doing, we can understand that, yes, he is alive and well still. He still has power. And number three, I think that we read here in this uh, in this event in Luke chapter 7, that it's always good to bring it back to the Bible. Because if you can go back to Scripture, that will help you overcome doubt. Jesus responds to the disciples of John by quoting Scripture. He quotes passages of Scripture that were beginning to be fulfilled. Not every detail of the prophecy that John knew about had been fulfilled at that point. But it was starting. It was starting to come together. Jesus was making John remember Scripture. He, he knew that John was aware of the Old Testament passages that discussed the Messiah. And so Jesus was pushing John to go back to the Scripture so that he can then conquer those doubts. You know, you and I need to allow our doubts to push us to Scripture. In another one of Asaph's Psalms, Asaph is once again dealing with the realities of, of serving a God who is at many times very mysterious doing things that we can't understand or allowing things that we don't like to continue to take place. This time in Psalm 73, uh, a deeper faith in God comes only when Asaph encounters the things of God, the word of God. In, in Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17, he says, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood. Personally, I cannot stand when somebody claims to have doubts, but doesn't do anything about those doubts. 
that they care very little to actually find answers to those doubts. It's, it's like they're comfortable with having doubts because it almost gives them an excuse to stop believing in God. I always wonder if those doubts are based on honesty or if they're just an easy way of not acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus. But if you allow your doubts to push you to Scripture, then you can allow Scripture to challenge those doubts. And all of this really is at the heart. Uh, It's learning to trust a God that is bigger and wiser and who sees deeper and further than you and I ever could. It's about being okay with a God whose ways and thoughts are higher than our own, about acknowledging that there are some things about God and about his ways and his word that are beyond our own understanding and being okay with it. You know, when you uh, are in an airplane, especially a smaller aircraft, well, even a bigger one, I guess, when you are navigating the the skies in an airplane, uh, especially in adverse weather conditions or night, you could easily get lost without having that instrument panel in front of you, right? That's the only way to know which direction you need to be headed or even which way is up, I've been told. You know, on February 3rd, 1959, uh, Buddy Holly and fellow rock and roll musicians, Richie Valens and the big bopper, J.P. Richardson, they were killed in a plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa. Uh, That event later became known as the day the music died. I've actually been to Iowa, to Clear Lake, uh, to Mason City, and I have seen the cornfield where the the, uh, plane had come to rest after the crash. It's uh, the day the music died, right? At the time, Buddy Holly and his band, they were, they were on this tour going through the Midwest. And uh, these rising rock and roll stars, Richie Valens and J.P. Richardson and, and Dion and the Belmonts, they had joined the tour as well. The, the long journey between venues on, on board the cold, uncomfortable tour buses uh, affected adversely the performers. They, they, they got colds, they got flu, they got frostbite. So they hated that bus. And so, after stopping in Clear Lake to perform, and frustrated by those tour bus conditions, Buddy Holly chose to charter a plane to reach their next venue in Minnesota. But soon after takeoff, late at night, and in poor wintry weather conditions in February, the pilot lost control of this light aircraft and crashed into a cornfield and killed all four people on board. What caused that crash? Well, after years of investigation, it's now reported that the pilot, Roger Peterson, just got mixed up. He couldn't see due to the weather conditions that night. And instead of trusting the the instrument panel, he thought that he could trust his own bearings. And he went against what the instruments were telling him. Folks, so it is with God. He has given us his word as our instrument panel. And he's given it to us so that we can navigate through life, even during those times where it doesn't make sense to us. He says, listen, if you just keep this in front of you, you will know where to go and how to get there, even when it doesn't make a lot of sense. Not that our faith is a blind faith. It's quite the contrary. In fact, in our passage this morning, it is clear that God invites us into the the process of wrestling with, with the way he works. You know, again, he didn't scold John for coming at him. You know, I loved to wrestle. I loved to wrestle, especially as a young kid in our youth group. Uh, before youth group would start, there was always some kind of wrestling match going on. We had a lot of high school wrestlers in our youth group. And boy, it was just fun. I mean, the endorphins that would go. I, I used to wrestle my dad 
we'd be like laying down uh, on the couch or on the big pillow watching TV in the living room. And during commercials, we would, he would like roll over on me and we would start to just wrestle. And he had at least 40 pounds on me. And so I would never win. But after every one of those times that I would wrestle my dad, the endorphins were just going through my body. My adrenaline was just pounding. I felt alive. My muscles had been exercised. I lost, but I felt alive. And it was such a great experience. In the Old Testament, the patriarch Jacob actually spends a night wrestling with a physical manifestation of God. And he comes out of that experience with a bit of a limp. Uh, you know. But he wrestled with God. He actually wrestled with God. And God, because of that experience, changes Jacob's name to reflect that experience. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which means wrestles with God. Isn't it intriguing to see that God chooses that name to call his people, right? Not, not Abraham, but Israel. The nation became known as wrestles with God. See, God wasn't offended that Jacob wanted to wrestle with him, to spar with him. God ob obviously knew that God was going to win, but he also knew that Jacob would come back out on the other side of that wrestling match better. He would have a deeper faith, a deeper trust in what God is doing and who he is and what, uh, and not what Jacob wanted God to be. See, folks, it's okay. It is okay to wrestle with God. That experience can actually deepen our faith when we do, but it's important to learn from John the Baptist and this whole uh, first part of chapter uh, seven is that the best wrestling matches will always involve us being honest with God about our struggles and keeping our eyes open to see the power behind all that he has done and continues to do in, in this world, in our life, or in the life of other people. And then in keeping our hearts set on the very words of the Bible, of Scripture, that speak of God's wisdom, God's character, and God's faithfulness. Those are the times that we can, like John the Baptist, set our hearts at rest during times of doubt. So back to C.S. Lewis as we wrap up. After the experience of losing his wife after only four years of marriage, after his crisis of faith and his questioning his experience of, of God, C.S. Lewis would write this short insight. Not my idea of God, but God. Not my idea of God, but God. That's what I'm going to be relying on. In other words, can I come to grips with the real God and not just my imagined idea of what he should be like? Can I allow God to be God in his unlimited, eternal, infinite person? And can then I allow myself to be okay with the shattering of my own personal idols that I create in my mind about who God is? John, the Baptist, needed to see Jesus for who he really was, not who he thought Jesus should be. And so do you. And so you'll have doubts, and that's okay. But if those doubts are left unattended, those doubts could pull you away from God and stifle your faith. And so I encourage you, in the times of doubt, when you don't understand, go to the source. Be honest. Be honest with God. Ask God to show himself to you again in a new way and 
to remind you of what he has already done. And then make the decision to trust, no matter if it makes sense or not, to trust. Because it's in that way that your faith as a disciple will have room to grow bigger and stronger. Well, that's uh, the encouragement that I have for you today. Um, thanks for uh, being a part of what's going on and listening to the podcast. I pray that God is uh, bringing you blessings. I want to thank again the team that makes these podcasts possible. Uh, Lisa Welly, our executive producer. Uh, Steve Pittman, who uh, just uh, keeps all of our electronics and, and uh, recording equipment up to date. And, uh, and I thank you for joining us uh, again for a podcast session, and we will see you next week.